The title of our message this morning is God and Sinners. Particularly going to be talking to believers in Jesus Christ this morning. How does sin play into the life of a believer? As believers, what are we to do with sin? What do we do when we sin? Can a believer sin? And in what ways does sin give evidence that we are no longer children of God? I brought with me this morning something by way of illustration. You're going to have to use your imagination just a little bit. I brought darkness with me this morning. Can you see how great this darkness is? Those of you that do not have imaginations are having trouble. You're saying, no, that's a piece of black construction paper. Come on! Get your inner imaginative six-year-old and enter the world of darkness. Okay, this is darkness, and I also brought with me light. I hope that you can see that from where you are. I believe that you can. I tried to test this out this morning. That You, you, you can see what is light and what is dark. And, and what I found fascinating by the way this flashlight shines its, its ray of light, there is no confusion between light and darkness. Can you see that? There, there's... There is no darkness inside the light. Come on, use your imagination. There's no light outside the darkness. Right? You get that? That, that outside the light is dark. Inside the light is light. There's no dark inside the light. There's, there's no light in the dark. There's, there's an in and an out. There's, there's light. There's dark. John uses that analogy that is often found in Scripture this morning in our passage. And, and, and he, he relates it to help his readers understand. He's writing to Christians. He calls them his dear children. And he says, look at this. There's light and darkness. You can't have both of them. They don't go together. If there's light, there's light. If there's darkness, there's darkness. And he's going to use that as a metaphor for sin, and he wants his children to understand, listen, if you love God, if you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there can be no room for sin in the life of the believer. So we come back to that question of what, what is, how should we think about sin and Christians? Like, how do we work on these categories? How does Scripture help us understand? Do Christians sin? If so, what do they do with their sin? Um, uh, can Christians walk in sin? That is, can Christians live a habitual lifestyle of regular, ongoing sin? Is that normal in the life of a believer? And John's going to address it with very strong words this morning. So remember, as we start this series in 1 John, we said there are several signs almost. They are the, the vital signs of the Christian life. John wants the believers to know that they really are believers. He's not writing to unbelievers trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel. He's writing to people who have believed in the gospel, and he says, this is the evidence that you will know. There are certain things that will be true in your life that will be characteristic patterns. You can call them the vital signs of the Christian life. You could call them the markers of the paternity test that you 
you know that you have your father you have you are children of the father God rather than children of the devil as he says in our passage this is how you'll really know that you're believers and there are three tests that John walks through one is this moral test that believers don't walk in sin a second test that he's going to use is he's going to say that believers love other believers they show God's love to other people who are Christians the third test he's going to use is that believers believe the right things about Jesus they believe the right doctrine and throughout his book he's going to circle to them over and over and over he's going to in the first couple of chapters he'll cover all three of them and then he comes back and covers them again from a little bit different angle that's why I read two different scriptures to you this morning is uh, we're gonna walk through this first test of what about sin in the life of a believer and here's what I want us to walk away with this morning we're just gonna focus on this first test and the believer and sin and how does God speak to Christians to those of us on the inside to those of us who say that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ what about sin in the life of a believer and how should we reconcile the, the, these two things, light and darkness, because John wants it to be very, very clear that there is no room for darkness inside of light. If you're taking notes, here's the one thing that I want you to walk away with this morning. It's this, sin has no place in the life of the believer. I recognize it's been quite some time since I've had a one thing for you to write down. Here it is this morning as we walk through this, there is no place for sin in the life of a believer. Sin has no place in the life of a believer. And John wants his children and his readers to understand it and recognize this is one of the ways that you'll know that you have eternal life. This is one of the ways that you will know that you are truly Christian. Sin has no place in the life of a believer. So let's walk through the text. Uh, I'll try to get through all of the scripture and then there's a few things that we need to clarify and go back and explain and a few applications that we'll try to make. So let's walk through this together. Chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John starts right away and he says, look, this, this is the message that we proclaim to you. Remember last week we walked through the first four verses and John says, I was a witness of this message. I was an eyewitness to the person of Jesus Christ. It's based in historical reality and now he says, here's the message that we proclaim to you. Ready? Children, this is how you're going to know that you're believers. And he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's the truth, the central truth that he wants them to grasp. And then he's going to give them several statements or tests or things that help them understand what it means that God is light and there's no darkness in him. He's going to give them several implications that all come back to that idea of God being light. Verse 5 is kind of this central truth claim. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Then look at verses 6, 8, and 10. If we say, verse 6, verse 8, if we say, verse 8, verse 10, if we say, he's going to make three statements that, that kind of flesh the rest of it out. And because the central message that God is light, there's certain implications that are going to be true in the life of the believer. There's going to be certain implications that are true for people who have fellowship with God by virtue of the fact that God is light. So remember over and over throughout Scripture, 
God uses, as God the author of Scripture who worked through 40-some human authors to pen the words of this book, there's certain themes that he loves to bring to light over and over for us to see and to catch. And light and darkness is one of those themes that's brought out over and over and over. John Stott has some very helpful thoughts helping us understand light and darkness he says he has this helpful thought trying to compare it both to intellectual truth and moral truth. That intellectually, light is truth and darkness is error. Throughout scripture you see that. That light is truth or knowledge or revelation and darkness is ignorance or it's error or it's a lack of revelation. Morally, light is purity and darkness is evil. So to walk in the light is to walk in the moral rightness of God and his commands. To walk in darkness is evil. You see it illustrated several ways. So in that idea of light being intellectual knowledge and truth, that's why Psalms talks about your word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Why? It shows me the truth and the intellectual truth of how I ought to walk. Second um, Peter talks about the word of the prophets being a light shining in dark places that as God revealed himself to people his word was light going forth in darkness that's why he was prophesied of Isaiah that uh, Jesus was one who was God's servant he was a light for the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth we celebrate at Christmas time light dawning light coming, bringing salvation, bringing knowledge to a world that was otherwise in ignorance and darkness. And yet morally, uh, here's the other way it's used, not just of intellectual knowledge, but morally Isaiah also speaks of the people of Judah who uh, they, they called evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They confused the categories. They no longer could see light as light. They exchanged it. They called good evil and evil good over and over through the letters of Paul he he describes walking in rightness and purity and moral as light and walking in sin and error and untruth as darkness and, and so scripture continually uses this metaphor and John comes back to it here and says that God is light there's no darkness in him at all he's the one that's morally pure he's the one that's morally right he's the one within whom all truth and knowledge is contained there's no darkness in him. Jesus came in John chapter 8 and said that he was the light of the world. John comes back to this idea saying that God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. Therefore, if that's true, that God is light and believers are people who have fellowship with God, then there ought to be certain things that are true in our life. And so he's going to lay out three statements and he's going to uh, say, listen, if he, he sets almost hypothetical truths. If we were to say that, and he's going to say it three times, he's going to point out the error that, listen, this, this doesn't match everything that we know about God being light and true and morally right. So look what he says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So listen, if, if you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ, John says, if you say you have fellowship, 
fellowship with God, the one who is light, and there's no darkness in him, but you walk in darkness, meaning you're walking in ways that are sinful, you lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. It's only when we walk in the light that we truly have fellowship with God and one another. That's where it comes from. John wants them to grasp. Look at verse 8 and verse 10. Let me put these two together. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Apparently, as I said last week, there were false teachers who had crept into the church and they were beginning to teach truths that were going to take these little children, John's converts in the faith, and they were going to carry them away into false doctrine. So whether these were actually word-for-word -word arguments of theirs or whether these were the implications of their teaching or whether John was looking at these false converts and simply saying, you know that their teaching is not true because of the rest of their lifestyle because they're walking in sin, Paul is trying to point it out and helping them to see, look, you can't say you have no sin. If you do that, you make God a liar. Jesus came to die for sins. And, and none of us uh, have risen to the point where we no longer struggle with sin. None of us have no need of a Savior. If we have no sin, is, if that's what we say, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So apparently there were people who, who by their lifestyle were denying the fact that they needed a Savior, that they, their the truths they were teaching were, ran contrary to the truth of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners and Paul's helping them see, look, there's this massive disconnect. That's why he points out in verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John wants his children to see that, that when we confess our sins, when we realize we're sinners, we come to God and that word confession is this idea of agreeing with God about our sins, saying, God, yes, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I have violated your commands. That God is both faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does it mean that God is faithful and just in forgiving us of our sins? We, we understand that word faithful. That makes a little bit more sense, right? God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. God will do as he has said and promised. God provided the person of Jesus Christ as a covering for our sin, as a means of atonement, as a propitiation for our sins, which he's going to cover in a couple verses. Verses. And John is simply saying that, that God is a faithful God. He, he is true to his promises that when we come to him and ask for forgiveness, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But he's also just. You see, part of what John is trying to bring out here is that what, why, why is God just in forgiving us? He doesn't just turn a blind eye to our sin. He's not like, you know, a, a child that comes to a parent and the child has broken the parent's commands and the child knows that if they break this command, there's a certain given punishment. And it's not like for whatever reason the parent is feeling gracious that day and the child comes and confesses and the parent says, you know what, it's okay. I'm not going to worry about the punishment. Just go enjoy the rest of your day. God does not turn a blind eye to our sin. He could not do that. If he did, he wouldn't be just. 
He could not be a good and just God if he excused sin that violates his righteous and holy commands. And so it's through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, by way forgiveness can come, and which God can also still be just. Sins have been paid for at the cross through the person of Jesus Christ. He was our substitute, taking a punishment that we deserved and bearing God's wrath for our sins. That's why... John can say that, that God is both faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we come to him and when we come to God and confess our sins. So he wants them to understand, look, there's no room, there's no category for anybody to come and say, I'm not a sinner, I don't need forgiveness, I have no sin. John says, listen, this is a lie. This is contrary to everything that we know about God. These kinds of truth claims are darkness, and darkness has no fellowship with light. In fact, to make such a claim proves that you are in the darkness. You are not in the light. And in chapter 2, verse 1, for now, I'm going to skip over this verse and come back to it, but there's chapter 2, verse 1 gives somewhat of a, a, an answer, some resolution. It helps with the tension here that's raised. Because what is John speaking about with sin? Does this mean, does, does this mean that anyone who sins um, is not a believer? What, what's, what's he talking about? Especially when we get to the end of chapter 2. So at the end of chapter 2, Paul writes, have I done that twice already this morning? Have I said Paul writes? Okay, John wrote, First John. All right. So at the end of chapter 2, John writes and he says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we, have, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now there's, there's some great truth that we need to catch in the second coming of Christ. We're going to come back to this passage again towards the end of the message. He, he expounds on it from the end of chapter 2 through the first three verses of chapter 3, and then he comes back to this idea of righteous living. He comes back to this idea that, that true believers don't walk in sin. Uh, th this, this is kind of verse 29, again, is a central statement. Chapter 2, verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There's the central truth. Now he's going to explain it for the next three verses and we'll come back to that a little bit. But, but only people who have been born of the righteous one practice righteousness. Look at verse 4. Everyone, verse 4 of chapter 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now he wants his readers to understand that people who habitually practice sin... It's not the sense that if you sin once, you're not a Christian. It's the sense that people whose lifestyle, whose practice, whose manner of life is unrighteousness, well, that's, that's sinful, and, and uh, that is lawlessness. Not simply just that they've broken God's law, but that they are, have disregard for God's law. That there's no law in play. They've thrown it off. They're, they're now living in a state with, uh, without law, so to speak. They've completely disregarded God's law. They're in a state of not being under God's law. And, and then John wants him to see, look, this is why Christ came the, sh the first time. There's this message we proclaim. We 
we saw Christ, we talked to him, we watched him come the first time, this is why he came. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Some of your Bibles don't have that idea of continual ongoing sin. In the translation, it maybe says no one who abides in him sins. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or has known him little children let no one deceive you whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous the the tense of the verbs the context help us understand this idea is this practicing ongoing sin someone who sins and continues to sin and they're living a lifestyle of sin and and they are not coming back in repentance they are not coming back in confession and they're continuing to walk in sin. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Two times, John wants them to catch. The reason Christ showed up the first time was to do away with sin, was to destroy the works of the devil. So therefore, to continue in this ongoing practice of sin runs contrary to the very nature of who God is and the reason that Jesus showed up the first time. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And he goes on to make another st statement, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That gets into what we'll cover next week. But he wants them to catch and understand. Look, there's no room. Sin has no place in the life of a believer. One cannot, ongoing in a continual way, walk in sin and be in fellowship with God or even claim to be a believer and claim to that they understood why Christ came the first time to deal with sin. The, there's no light inside of darkness. There's no darkness inside of light. Like the, the, the two don't mix. You, you're on completely different planes here. And so John wants his readers to understand, especially you see this in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed remains in him. You see, there's something in the life of a believer, namely the Spirit of God himself who causes new life, a regenerated spirit, and that, that's contrary to one who continues to walk in the deeds of the flesh, in continual, unrepentant lifestyles of sin. The two don't go together. So what do we make of this? How do we understand it? I'm speaking this morning to a group of people who are largely professing Christians. That is, m most of you have come to a place in your life where you believe that you are a Christian. You believe that you are walking in the light and in fellowship with God. That is, you've come to the place in your life where you realize your sin separated you from God and there's nothing you could do to get salvation except for what Jesus Christ did on the cross and by faith and repentance, you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. There's others of you that are here and contemplating that decision and trying to think through it, and I, I hope that there's encouragement and truth for how you can find salvation and eternal life. But I want to speak to that first group primarily, Christians. Here's why a passage like this is difficult for us. Because for those of us that are Christians, there's not a one of us who is without sin like even in the last week, right? 
I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, like, we, we are people that still sin. And so how do we, how do we deal with sin? What is John saying? Uh, especially um, if you don't have one of those translations that brings out that continuing, ongoing, keeps on sinning. If your Bible just says something like, uh, no one who commits sin is born of God, it's like, whoa. Does that mean I'm supposed to get to a point that I no longer commit sin? What do we do with people that we thought were believers and then they do walk in sin for years or months or decades? What categories do we have for thinking through these kinds of things? So I want to do a little bit of explaining of how the Bible teaches about sin in the life of a believer because this passage in particular does several things. One, this passage corrects uh, some false teaching about sin in the life of the believer, at least a, at least a warning that we want to be careful of. Um, number two, I think this passage has been used uh, and interpreted wrongly to say some things that it's not, so we want to guard against a, a, an idea like that. Um, and, and so there's just implications regarding the life of the believer in sin that I want us to understand before then we kind of dive back in and say, all right, so what's the truth that we need to walk away in all of this? Um, a, as I said, there's, there's misinterpretations either regarding the category of sin in the life of a believer, whether it's from this passage or others that I think this sin, this uh, passage speaks to. It helps clears up. There's other implications Um, I think there's been some unhelpful distinctions made that we want to be careful uh, and and recognize that's not what this passage is trying to teach. So when you look at at a strong statement where John is saying, anyone who sins is not born of God, and there are people who are sinned that prove that they're children of the devil. Uh, Christians have tried through the years as they study the Bible to come up with categories and distinctions that aren't necessarily helpful. So the first one might be this. I, I don't take John here to say that there's a certain list of sins that if believers sin in this way, it proves they're not believers, right? So uh, especially the Roman Catholic Church has come up with a list of mortal and venial sins and perhaps especially through some things that John says in chapter 5 about sins leading up to death where they in- misinterpret in, the, in, a, in trying to resolve the tension. There's mortal sins that if you commit this sin and never get to repentance, then John is trying to say, well, see, that proves you weren't a believer. That's, that's not in John's category of thinking here as he talks about sin in this way. So first of all, don't try to draw a distinction among sins as if John is saying uh, there's certain sins that if a believer commits, this means they're not a believer. Uh, That's not in John's category of thinking as he tries to write this out here. So don't draw a distinction among sins. Secondly, if we misunderstand sanctification, we, we might try to draw distinctions within our very persons, within our very beings, we might try to draw some type of a distinction within ourselves. Let me explain what I mean by that. It'll take us just a second to get there. What is sanctification? Remember, sanctification in the life of a believer is that ongoing process where we continually become more and more like Christ. Our lives are transformed. So yes, the believer will still sin, but in the sanctification process, Hebrews Hebrews 12 talks about uh, a loving father who brings discipline into the life of his children to work on them, to sanctify them, to grow them, to bring about uh, repentance and growth when sin is present in the life of a believer. Remember, sanctification 
is an ongoing process. It, it happens to the believer continually throughout their life. We won't be fully sanctified until we stand before God in glory. Remember, justification, or positionally you might say, we're sanctified right away at the moment of salvation. We are, we are no longer counted as sinner. We're counted as not guilty. We've been justified. Our sins have, the guilt of our sins have been wiped clean. But now moving forward in this life, we are progressively, ongoingly being sanctified in a way that we um, hopefully the believer sees growth and victory over the power of sin in their present daily life, right? Now, some of this teaching, perhaps 150 years ago at its height, has somewhat recently in Christianity and in America in particular, it's not as prevalent today, but I just want to bring it up because I want to show you where it led, and it's an unhelpful distinction, I think. But there, there was a holiness movement out of a right desire to, we, we need to avoid sin at all costs. We've got to get sanctified. We've got to seek holiness. We've got to pursue the holiness without which no one will see God which is a true scripture and command and there was all it was portrayed as if there could be a second work of grace that there was something significant that could happen in the life of the believer which wherewith they could reach sinless perfection on this life uh, and, and that was a way to resolve some of the tension of what John was speaking in here that that Christians can get to sinless perfection in this life and that's why John is so harsh with sin and yet with proponents of that who would say that they had arrived at this second work of grace, it was easy to be able to point to them and say, well, no, I see sin in your life. Like, remember last Thursday when you, you know, and so some of the argument there was that that sin, they made a, an unhelpful distinction or the end result, perhaps not everybody, but the end result of that is that some would make a distinction within their being. Well, I didn't, I didn't sin that way. That wasn't my spiritual self. That was my body, the flesh that sinned in that way, but it wasn't my being. I've achieved a second work of grace and I'm now in sinless perfection, right? So perhaps not everybody took it to that extreme, but that's where it led. And so it's a, it can be a very unhelpful distinction to try to separate uh, our being as if we can spiritually arrive to some helpful, some superior second level of grace. That's simply just not the case. It's, it's um, not a helpful distinction to make. And so make sure you avoid that in any sense that we know when ultimate sanctification will come. It will come at the end of our life when we're fully glorified standing before God. For now, the Christian does still sin. The, the, the third distinction that perhaps is isn't helpful, or at least we need to be very careful in how we talk about it and think about sin in the life of believers, is that perhaps rather than just making a distinction among sins or a distinction among ourselves, we try to come up with distinctions among Christians, that there are the spiritual Christians who are walking with God, and then there are those that who are walking in sin, they're still saved, but for whatever reason, they're going on in unrepentant carnal sin. And so I don't know if that's the most helpful way to think about coming up with different categories because John, in this passage in particular, is trying very, very clearly to say that no one who has been born of God continues to walk in sin in an ongoing way, habitually walks in sin, and God never brings them to a point of repentance. Now, by that, I am not saying that believers, even in this day and age, don't sin. They do. 
I'm not saying that believers might not even go through prolonged periods of unrepentant sin. They might. Remember through the story of David as we looked at his life and as we looked at Saul's life, both men sinned, right? There were times where Saul was remorseful and repentful, we might say. He at least showed sorrow. But it wasn't true repentance in the sense of continuing to walk with God. It drove him deeper and further into despair and sin. What did David do in his sin when he was caught in his sin? Why is it that he was a man after God's own heart? When, when God confronted this man with his sin, who sinned in some grievous and glorious ways as we studied, what did he do? He repented. He walked with God. He pursued him. There was a repentance that brought life. And yet... David suffered real consequences for his sin. He wrote about them in Psalms. We can see where he talks about how it affected his being. It affected his sleep. One of the things that we noticed in his sin with Bathsheba, that that was at least one to two years, at least before Nathan showed up and confronted him. So I am not saying that believers won't sin or even have prolonged periods of rebellion. What I'm saying is that John seems to make clear that there's two categories categories, light and darkness, believer and unbeliever. And the believer will not continually, habitually, in an ongoing way, walk in unrepentance, walk in defiance of the lawgiver. And John wants them to catch that. Now, I know that that brings a certain sense of heartache for those of you that have children or loved ones who at one time made a profession of faith and for years or decades you haven't seen fruit. It seems to be that they're walking in darkness. What do we make of that? We, we know, it, 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 so it brings a concern and a burden and sorrow to your hearts and rightly it should. It's a very serious matter. And yet we have this glorious hope and truth that if this person truly came to faith in Christ, if they were born again, God will pursue them. He will not give up on them. He will be faithful to bring them to a point of salvation. And so we pray for that. We pray for God's pursuing hand to work in their hearts and lives, but we don't put our faith and trust in the fact that we saw them make a profession of faith. We put our faith and trust in the fact that God loves them. He's pursuing them. If they weren't converted yet, what they need is conversion now and to be brought to a point of salvation because someone who truly knows God and walks in the light and is born of God cannot walk in darkness. That's John's point. They cannot keep on sinning. And John wants the readers to catch that, that he's writing to his little children and he says, listen, I want you to know that you're saved and here's one of the tests that you'll be able to know. If you're walking in a lifestyle of sin, that's out of bounds. It doesn't work. It doesn't line up. You fail that test. But true children of God, what do they do when they sin? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's the hope that we have. So with some of those confusions cleared up, let's come back to the application then. First of all, here's one of the truths for us. Number one, you do not get to fellowship with God without cleansing at the cross. 
You do not get to fellowship with God without cleansing at the cross. Come back to chapter 2 and look at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He, he wants them to avoid sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That idea of, of Jesus being our advocate. It was like a legal helper, one who spoke in the defense of uh, the one who was on trial. Jesus pleads our case before God. We have an advocate saying, my blood covers their sins. That's what Jesus does for us. So listen, if you're here this morning, you don't get to cleansing. You don't get to fellowship with God without cleansing at the cross. So what does it take to be a believer in Jesus Christ? What does it take to be a Christian? Uh, starting to go to church, it's good. It doesn't make you saved. Believing in God, it's good. It doesn't make you saved. You see, there's sin separating you from God, and you need an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. You need to turn from your sins, call out in faith, trusting in what Jesus Christ has done, that his finished work on the cross is the only thing that brings you into right relationship with God. Is the only thing. Hanging out with Christians doesn't make you saved. Learning the Christian lingo doesn't make you saved. Joining a church, getting baptized in the church, none of that stuff makes you saved. You need the blood of Jesus Christ speaking on your behalf, covering your sins. And Scripture says we only get that through faith and repentance. And that's how we find salvation in eter eternal life, forgiveness, a right relationship with God. There's a second application that we need to make at the end of chapter 28. At the end of chapter 28, through the first three verses of chapter 3, there's five verses there that I skipped over. There is more in those five verses that I can cover. We could spend a couple of weeks just on those, what it means to be loved by the Father and be called His children. But particularly, I want you to see the second coming. I want you to see how John speaks of the reality and the hope of Christ coming again and how that helps us in our battle against sin. Now, little children, and abide in him so that when he appears, so that when he comes, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's, there's things we don't know yet in terms of our final eternal state and what we will become, but this is what we do know, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in this way or who has this hope or who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see what John wants them to catch? Listen, Jesus is coming again. Purify yourselves. When he comes... We don't want you to shrink back in shame, but we want you to have confidence. And listen, you show that you understand the truth of the gospel when you realize that he's coming again, and so you're purifying yourself, rooting out sin, fighting against sin, confessing sin, because you know he's coming again. And one day you will be pure as he is pure. See, the gospel is not the truth that if you just trust Jesus Christ for salvation, you now get to live any way you want. No. You show that you do not understand the gospel and you do not understand his first coming if you are not purifying yourself in light of his second coming. That's what, Jesus is, that's what John is trying to communicate. Listen, if you really know why he showed up the first time to deal with sin, 
You'll be working on sin because he's coming again. And you're going to be purifying yourself. And so John is saying that there's no room in, in the life of the believer for ongoing habitual sin. So my hope is that if you're here in a believer, the Spirit is convicting you, pricking, pricking your conscience about sins that perhaps you've been comfortable with that you ought not to be. Because true believers, it's not that we don't sin. It's that we don't walk in sin. We realize sin is a big deal. We confess. We repent. We see it in our words, our attitudes, and our actions. Are you fighting sin in both words, attitudes, and actions? How about your speech? If you are someone who is offensive and rude or untruthful with your speech, and that's how you are known, you don't understand Jesus' first coming. John says that you can't walk in sin that way and be a believer. If your attitude is disrespectful to authority, this doesn't matter if you're 17 and you have the authority of your parents or if you're in your 50s and you have the authority of the workplace or if you're in later generations, shall we say, and you have other authorities in your life or the authority of the church in your life, if your attitude is disrespectful there, John says you can't walk in sin that way and truly claim to have fellowship with God. He's going to talk about loving the brothers and having right beliefs. These are things that we can't continue in sin and say that we know and understand God. If you're abusing alcohol or narcotics to the point that you, you are habitually walking in sinful lifestyles in these ways, you, you can't say that you have fellowship with God. If, if lust is something that is evident in the hidden corners of your life, whether, whether that's through pornography and the things that you choose to view online or whether you are sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, you can't say that you walk in the light. You can't say you understand the gospel. You can't say that you have fellowship with God and have been born of God if this is a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle. Yes, Christians sin in these ways. But they repent, they confess. The, the loving father pursues his children and brings them back. What about your entertainment choices? Uh, th this, this always strikes in my heart. The things that you choose to watch on TV or stream online, are you entertained by the very sins Christ died for? And does it prick your conscience? Does it bother you? John would say there's a massive disconnect for people that uh, are finding enjoyment and entertainment in the very sins that Christ came to this earth to destroy the deeds of darkness. It's not that Christians don't sin in these ways. It's that when Christians do sin, they repent. They confess. So you might be here and have your conscience pricked this morning and you, and you realize you are a believer. I'm not saying if you sinned in any of the ways that I listed that you're not a believer. I'm saying if you're a believer and the Spirit of God speaks to you through His Word, you'll repent, you'll confess because we as Christians, we don't want to walk with sin. It's, it's too dangerous. You have this quote by J.C. Ryle in your bulletin. Will you play with poison? Will you sport with hell? Will you take fire in your hand? Will you harbor your deadliest enemy in your bosom? Will you go on living as if it mattered nothing whether your own sins were forgiven or not, whether sin had dominion over you or you over sin? Oh, awake to a sense of sin's sinfulness and danger. As Christians, John wanted his children to understand 
Be awakened to the dangers of sin. Yes, Christ came to conquer sin, but we are people who fight and war against sin, and we root it out in our flesh. We, we seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So if you're here and you are in sin as a believer, bring it into the light. Confess it. Perhaps it's something that all you need is to do business with God. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps this is of such a sin that, that you need help in fighting it and, and you need to confess to one another that you may be healed, not that in confessing to one another there's some saving grace applied in that, but that's how part of how God prescribed to fight the battle of sin, that the church comes together and says, you know what, I'll pray for you in this. Here's how God helped me in this area. I I, want to fight this sin with you, and you might need to bring help. Come into the light. Sin wants to stay in the darkness, and it tells you that that's where you will be safe, and it's a lie from the devil. Bring it into the light. Confess it. Find healing and hope. Because the truth is, is that Christians who gather in the church, we're not people who have our lives together and therefore never have sin. We're people who don't walk in our sin because we realize Jesus came to deal with our sin. We confess it. We turn from it. I've read this quote to you before. I'm confident you've heard it at least once or twice. But Milton Vincent writes about the glories of the gospel and and just being willing to bring sin out into the open, confess it, deal with it, and not feel like the church is a place where we just have to put on uh, a front as if everything is okay and, and go around as if we have no sin because John says that's just not true. John said, Milton Vincent says this, the cross also exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others under the light of that cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill. Some of you are caught in sins that you are terrified to bring out into the light, thinking that it's shameful. The most shameful thing that could ever be known about us is blared with the truth of the gospel, that we are such sinners condemned and separated from God that he had to send his own son to this cross to pay the punishment for our sins. And I'm not saying that bringing your sin into the light won't be painful. I'm not saying that it won't have consequences. It will. But it's how a loving father pursues his children. Confessing it and bringing it into the light and dealing with it proves that you are his child because it The worst thing that could happen is not that you would not deal with this sin. The worst thing that could happen is not that you would not experience the shame of being exposed. The worst thing that could happen is that God would never bring it into the light because it proves you're not his. Hebrews 12 talks about how the father disciplines the children that are his. And so know this, encourage this. Preaching about sin isn't fun, especially when I know that I have sin in my life. And yet... The truth of the gospel is so encouraging because the gospel is what brings a remedy. It brings answers. It brings balm. It brings hope. It exposes darkness. It's the only place to find true joy and freedom. 
How do you know that you're a Christian? One of the ways you know is that you don't walk in sin, and when God exposes sin, you repent, confess, and turn. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the truth of the gospel that you sent Christ to bring light, to expose darkness. I pray that those who are here this morning, who are truly your children, will walk in the light, that as the Spirit brings conviction, that you would do a work of grace and conviction in their hearts such that it brings them to repentance and restores them again to fellowship with you. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.